0: Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 69 of the R Weekly Highlights podcast. The summer is in full swing. Many things are wrapping up, but we're very happy to have you tune in to listen to some more great R content for your listening pleasure. And I am joined, as always, by my excellent co-host, Mike Thomas. How's it going today, Mike? Doing
1: great, Eric. We're on week 50 this week. If my math is right, that means we are pretty close to the end of the year.
0: You bet it is. And we've had a lot and a lot of awesome content all these past weeks. And that's no shortage of today as well. And this week's issue was curated by Batul Almorzak. And I always apologize, Batul, if I'm not getting that last name right. I try my best. Um, But she's been on our R Weekly team for, I believe, a year now and been doing a great job. But as always, she had great help from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors from all around the world. Well, the first highlight today is right up our wheelhouses, so to speak, Uh, Mike. As someone who's been an avid Shiny developer and user since the beginning, you might say, I'll tell you that one of the challenges I've had lately, and you can always tell me if you resonate with this, is trying to keep the perspective of those who are new to Shiny, new to application development, is either I'm developing internal resources, say for tutorials at work, or figuring out ways to kind of frame certain concepts during any demonstrations I do say in the open. Now, certainly I think lately, I would say within the last couple of years, um, the resources and documentation around Shiny itself, both on the official package side and in the community, which we've touched on quite a bit, it's come a very long way since the early days where we all all we have is that Google mailing list and we're all just kind of learning together. But there is one thing that always stays the same throughout this duration of things like Shiny or frankly R itself. As far as the way I approach things, I don't really start to learn something and really digest it until I have a meaningful project that really challenges me to dive into the details of how to how to complete that project or how to build the application. And it was apparent to me from the onset that Shiny itself is really an excellent tool for teaching the spectrum of simple or complicated concepts in statistics and data science. Because if you're able to interact with a web-based application that dynamically updates, that sure beats looking at a bunch of PowerPoint decks like we had to uh, sit through in many uh, graduate school stat courses or introduction to stat courses. Well, that's where Albert Rapp, PhD student in mathematics at Ulm University in Germany, he decided to take the plunge into actually developing a Shiny app as a way to explain concept of variation for how variation is changing with common estimates and their various properties, such as, say, the mean and the median, um, with a Shiny app to explain to his students. And so in his blog post, Albert shares a few learnings on crafting a relatively small Shiny app, but again, from the perspective that I alluded to earlier, somebody new to this framework, new to this package. And this is another, in my mind, a nice example of not only learning by doing, but learning out loud, so to speak, and sharing it. Um with the rest of the world on on his findings. Now, I will say off the bat, I may not necessarily agree with every technique that um, that Albert uh, utilizes here, but there were certainly a few that resonate with me, especially as I'm starting to explain shiny um, to colleagues and others that are getting new to it. My favorite part, and it was actually near the top, so to speak, um, is highlighting the super simple way that you can change an appearance of a Shiny app very easily with the BSLib package. That's been authored by Carson Sievert, our studio software engineer on the Shiny team. Now, a key mission of BSLib is to make it much easier for Shiny developers of any experience level to change the appearance of a Shiny app, um, whether it's using pre-baked templates that it comes with or getting really detailed. And maybe changing the font style, the colors of certain attributes, and say the Bootstrap theming library. If you are into that kind of customization, BSLib is your friend for that as well. So, as I think about this, and I think back to a time in days long before the current pandemic when I was at our Studio Conf in Maven 2019, I was sharing a dinner with Winston Chang, uh, who's now leading the Shiny project. And one of my better our friends, so to speak, Yanni City, talking shop about shiny stuff. And Winston, I remember this very well. He was benumbing the fact that a lot of the apps that he would see in the community, just sharing with it with everybody, always looked the same—the same default template, the same sidebar, and everything. When you have things like BS Lib now. I don't think there's any excuse left anymore not to make your app look at least a little unique. Like I said, there are templates in there for you to choose from. You can fine tune as much or as little of those as you want. So now you get to make your application stand out. And sometimes first impressions are everything depending on the customer that's going to be viewing this. So you want to make sure, especially if you're doing this more routinely, that you set yourself up for success from that UI and UX perspective right off the bat. So that was easily my favorite part. And I also liked him highlighting the techniques of reactive values and reactive valves. I talk about this a bit during some of my streams, but I I tend to think of those as ways on the server side of things to track application state. And it's kind of like a UI in and of itself, but there's no visible look to it. It's all stuff I interact with on the back end which is very important for me when I launch analyses on different systems for say machine learning or simulations of like thousands, tens of thousands of data points. I need to see how that process is going. Did it have an error? Did it complete? And that's where reactive values are a huge help there. And lastly, the one that I, I liked as well is being able to organize your UI with tabs and tab panels it gets away from trying to cram every single detail, every element, every explanation in one default page and making the user have to scroll up and down or left and right, depending on how far you lay it out. So being able to kind of compartmentalize from a UI perspective, different pieces of it, I think is a valuable tool for organization. And again, just getting that UX experience um, in a a top-notch state, even before you do a whole lot of Additional development. So I'm really glad to see, to see Albert's post here. But Mike, you're a Shiny enthusiast. What, what was your take on some of the things uh, Albert talked about? Yes,
1: I really liked this post as well. Really like seeing the BS Lib call at the top of, of the script. That is something that I incorporate in just about all of my Shiny apps these days. Maybe I'll give a free hint uh, out there a tip, a Shiny tip and trick that I use all the time is to. Use the, the color picker widget from Chrome, grab my client's corporate colors and map those into the background and foreground components of uh, the BS Lib theme styling. Uh, you can really brand quickly the app that you're building to your company's you know color scheme and logo, and it will sell very well upstream as it makes its way to, to managers and higher up and, and you'll stand out. As opposed to looking like, uh, you know, just kind of the typical shiny app that everybody's used to in the shiny gallery, just taking the default. So um, it's all about making it not look like a shiny app somewhat and making it look like it's a real production grade app. Um, So. Really like that start. Uh, hopefully, maybe that tip and trick will help somebody out there. And, and really, also enjoyed uh, seeing him using reactive value, reactive values. I tend to love using those over, um, you know, assigning x to reactive, j- just the reactive function, um, because I don't have to worry about forgetting the parentheses after the <laughs> reactive object. Right, right. <laughs> when I use it downstream, um, and I can sort of organize my reactive uh, objects in a lot better ways, I find when I'm using reactive values, because I can you know, nest them just with the dollar sign. They can be multiple levels deep. So I believe in mastering Shiny, uh, Hadley says that there are some minor performance improvements if you use like that open parentheses reactive approach. Um, but don't quote me on that. I think it's pretty negligible. Albert also introduces Shiny's isolate function in his blog, which can be really useful for wrapping around code that you do not want to re-execute during some event, for example. So he he had a really great explanation about why you might want to do that and where you might want that to take place. So I highly recommend the the function documentation for isolate um, that RStudio has, which has some beautifully intuitive illustrations of how the reactive graph inside your Shiny application works when isolate is and isn't used, if you're looking to dive deeper into that function. I would definitely agree that this is a great blog for beginner to intermediate Shiny devs who are maybe just starting to dig a little deeper into some of the nuances of reactivity. Um, Albert shows some great ways in which he modularized some of his code into a function. So he's taking the, the dry, do not repeat yourself principles Um, seriously in his app building. And he also highlights one of my favorite shiny tricks, which is leveraging the suite of update functions. Yes. His use case is for updating the current tab panel that's showing, but you may also want to note listener uh, that you can update the choices or current selections of like a radio button or a slider input or pretty much any component of a UI widget um, and these update functions uh, are much more performant than doing something like render UI for the entire widget. I don't know if you've uh, found that as well in your work, Eric.
0: Oh gosh, yeah. In my early days, I used UI output, render UI way, way too much. And now, especially in light of yeah, Albert's post, as well as one of the chapters in Engineering Production Grade Shiny by Colin Fay and the team at ThinkR, and enlighten me the fact that the more, the less work you make the server do, especially for UI stuff, the better your life is going to be, especially as you start to build this app in a more complicated way. So I try to use those update family of functions every chance I get. And it's nice that even some of the packages that aren't from Shiny themselves, so to speak, or from our studio themselves they often have their own family of update functions like Shiny Widgets, one of my favorites, has their own version of updates for their slick-looking uh, UI elements. And so it's it's a great way to eke out some extra juice from the performance standpoint and, frankly, to make your, your code organization a little easier as well.
1: Absolutely. I think it's so noticeable, the performance improvements, yeah. because you're, it's just updating the part that needs to be updated instead right. of the entire widget, which I think is where most of the time savings comes in but all in all this is a really really well laid out blog albert has some really nice concise code that supplements his thought process and the process of building his shiny app Um, and albert even at the bottom of his blog has a link to his youtube channel that i poked around on and it looks like he's done some learning r out in the open uh, type streaming videos so definitely check that out and we will link to his youtube channel in the show notes
0: that's awesome. I, of all people, love to see that, and this makes me a little jealous that all this stuff wasn't around when I was learning aria. Felt like on my own island, so to speak. Although I did have fellow grad school students that were also trying to figure out what the heck is this thing doing. But <laughs> but it's amazing what what we can what we see in the community when we're sharing this stuff, like I said, out loud, out in the open. And and certainly, Albert, uh, best of luck to you on the rest of your program and. It's great to see another uh, member of the R community dive into shiny. Well, we'll never get tired of that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I don't think there's enough ink, ink that could be spilled around, uh, you know, beginner, intermediate
0: shiny posts. Yep. Well, speaking of learning, Mike, um, I don't know about you. I like to have a good book now and again to um, level up on some area in, say, data science, or just for entertainment. Yes, yes. Um, none of you will see this on audio, but both uh, both uh, Mike and I are, are happy customers or owners of engineering production, grade Shiny. And that's on my bookshelf in the storage room somewhere, although it's not in my backpack because whenever I take the kids out to activities, I'm reading that while I'm in the waiting area. So, you know, you got to take your opportunities when you can get, but... It's it's amazing how many books are out there. Um, so that and the JavaScript for our book are two of my favorites right now.
1: I never let uh, engineering production grade shiny apps more than four feet out of my sight. So <laughs>
0: good the bookshelf would be too far for me, Eric. Good on you. Good on you. Yep. Yep. So there's like now it's in my backpack, so I'm I'm mobile and armed to the knowledge uh, masses, so to speak, with that. Those are obviously not the only books about R these days. I went back in our back catalog of R Weekly Highlights and I noticed that our highlight we're going to talk about today actually has a pretty long history and it was started back in March of last year, which was episode 3. Episode 3, It's a long time ago. Um, What am I referring to here? I'm referring to A very nice curated resource for basically any book that's been shared, whether in the open or not, that's addressing R and data science. It is called The Big Book of R. It's not in itself a book per se, but it's written in bookdown, down, deployed online with chapters that are basically dedicated to a different book across different domains. And like I said, this was launched in our, in last year um, by data specialist Oscar Barufa. And when it started, it had, already had 75 books. That's a pretty nice amount from the launch. Now we have over 250, <laughs> and it keeps growing. It keeps growing, and that growth is what we're going to highlight today. Um, Oscar wrote a nice post about nine recent additions um, to the collection. And Mike and I have picked out some of the ones that are called our eyes. I'll I'll lead off with something that I alluded to in one of our previous episodes is we often see a lot of discussions around building the community of our packages, whether it's in say Tidyverse land or other areas. And we have great resources around just building a package itself via books like our packages, by Hadley Wickham and Jenny Bryan. That's just for starters. But what about the resources around actually extending or enhancing base R itself? Well, that was one of the the group of nine that we saw in this post, as the R Contributing Working Group has released the R Development Guide. And this is actually a funded project in the R community to bring concepts like looking at bugs in R core, how to develop patches for bugs and do it in a way that meets the requirements of the actual core team, along with getting yourself set up for the for contributing back to R itself. Um, now, I'm sure there are some details of this that are covered in, say, the the base R manuals. You often see like these massive PDFs that are on the main R site. I have a confession to make. I've never read them verbatim. Um, But this one, this one here, I think for today's age is a great way to get started with it. So I think that deserves more attention. I'm glad to see Oscar highlighted in, in the recent editions here. And another one that caught my eye, is um, DevOps for Data Science by Alex Gold over at our studio. He's um, a solutions engineering manager there. And now I'm going to fully be up front with my bias here. I love the DevOps stuff. It goes so well with my adventures in Linux and open source and kind of stitching tools together, trying new things with deployments or infrastructure deployments. And so I think this is, it, it's one of those things where you may not need it right away. But if you're in a situation and you're trying something new whether it's in your research or in your your profession and you need to be able to get a little more hands on with like how things are deployed some of the best practices around version control or container technology you may not know you need it now but having this available where you do need to understand some of the lower level tech around this and taught or at least written about from the perspective of a data scientist I think that's extremely valuable. So you don't have to be uh, a diehard Linux uh, knowledge master to understand this. You can just take what you need, use it for your particular project and get on your way. I think this book is a great step in that. And then lastly, there's no way I can summarize this very quickly, but at work, sometimes I have to deal with these uh, graphs. And what I mean by graphs is you have, nodes and edges, and you have maybe a ton of connections in between. You might have to figure out like distance between these mathematically. And so Keith McNulty has authored the Handbook of Graphs and Networks and People Analytics, because he does a lot of analyses, it looks like, with talent retention and and professional development on that side. And so if you ever are interested in the world of graph theory and kind of applying it, to real world scenarios and distilling some of these concepts you hear about like nodes, distances, um, you know, even complicated data structures built on graph theory. That book is really cool. And it even has snowflakes when you look at it during this holiday season. So props to the styling there as well. Um, uh-huh. There's obviously much more than that. So um, Mike, you, you you love a good book, I know. So what, what things uh, caught your attention here?
1: Yes, so much content in here. I think one of Oscar's first new um, books within here or articles within here is Megan Harris's Intro to Artistry, uh, which I believe we covered a few episodes back when we got to witness some of the beautiful work that Megan was doing with Gigi Plot. Um, Nice to see that work continue to get highlighted elsewhere in the community I was also really interested in the Hiring Data Scientists and ML Engineers book uh, by Roy Keyes, which is actually you know a physical paid book that you can purchase. Uh, I, I think that this topic around hiring in the data science space, um, there's definitely also not enough ink that's been spilled. And we're still working day in and day out, I feel, a lot of the times to communicate to non-technical managers about what data science actually is yes. and what it isn't as well. Um, So I've seen a lot of situations where data scientist friends of mine have gotten hired at a new company that gave them, you know, this great job description, uh, but they ended up getting asked to do VLOOKUPs in Excel for 90% of their time. I've also seen a lot of frustrated hiring managers having a hard time finding the right candidate, um, saying all of these resumes look the same. And I think that's a function of them not knowing exactly what they want, the, the company, And also needing to understand that hot take incoming, prepare yourself. Oh, I'm buckled up. Let's hear it. Maybe data scientist has become too broad of a term. Um, The way around this is for hiring managers, maybe to stop asking for particular techniques in the job description, like a time series forecasting. We want to see you have ML experience, NLP, uh, that you use SQL, R and Python and maybe start talking a lot more specifically about what you expect that person to actually be doing on a day-to-day basis. I think I've seen some job postings from folks like our studio Recently, I know they're on a big hiring spree and their job postings look a lot more like, if this sounds like you, you'd be a great fit here. And talking about exactly you know, what, what task you might be doing on a day-to-day basis there. You might be a good fit if you Blank, blank. You know, have experienced using DevOps. If you like, uh, you know, exploring new challenges that are cross-language between R and Python, things like that. So, um, really enjoyed that book. I, I would recommend folks uh, check it out if they haven't done so yet. Especially if they're in maybe a more senior role where they have to do some hiring. I know the new year's coming up, and maybe those those budgets are filled with a new resource or resources. For hiring, so uh, maybe it's a good time to check out some of that that content. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with the title data scientist or advertising for a data scientist, but if you're going to do so, then then you should know that that term nowadays encompasses a wide range of skills and areas of possible expertise. I mean, that could mean folks who are really more in the data visualization space, or it could be folks who are doing you know deep learning. I think both of those people have the right to call themselves data scientists these days. And that's just a function of how broad the term's gotten. Um, so that's my soapbox. I'm stepping down off of it. And just want to say that this was my actually my first introduction to the Big Book of R. And I almost ran out of time putting my notes together for the show because I could not help diving into some of the over 200 articles, I think it is, in the collection so much valuable content in here highly recommend that if you're like me and you haven't explored it yet that you definitely do so now we'll have plenty of links in the show notes
0: yeah i think the first time i saw it i was just like you last year when i was clicking through this and i'm like okay what do i talk about how do i choose like there was so many in that initial 75 alone that um, caught my eye in different ways this gets to the spirit of frankly efforts like what our weekly itself is it's one curated, regular place that you could just put throw in your bookmarks and you can see what's, what's coming new. And if there is a specialization within data science or within the art community or both, um, there's probably something for you. Um, it spreads so many different domains here. Um, so I'm really intrigued by, by hopefully it keeps going well. And um, certainly this is definitely the season where I try to give thanks to all the great projects or great contributors out there. So my thanks to Oscar for taking this on and to maintain this and to keep it thriving. But I think it's a great benefit to everybody, no matter what experience level, um, to find the content they're looking for and to really expand their skill set. Because now, especially in the days of people maybe wanting to jump into data science, as, as big of a term that is, these are great ways to, to arm you for that journey if you're not on that already.
1: Absolutely. Fantastic resources that we have right at our fingertips. Yeah.
0: And and I just love that there's at least half of these, if not more, are also freely available online, too. So you not only can get links to them, but you can read them. And frankly, what I do, and I'm not saying everybody in the, in the world needs to do this, but the open publishing model has been so transformative for me personally just in my learning that I still will buy the printed book because I want to show my support to the publishers like CRC and O'Reilly. They're not sponsoring me or anything, but they're the two that I buy from the most because they often have the most art content out there. So I buy between those and and Springer uh, obviously as well. So anytime somebody takes that step, whether it's the author or whoever else, I think that deserves a lot of praise as well because in the old days, you know, back in my day, get off my lawn kind of thing, um, they would never, ever see these things shared online. Not like that. You'd have to pay a lot of money right. to buy, in some cases, only the hardcover edition of a book. And boy, as a as a grad student, we didn't have a lot of money to spare, that would eat up the pocketbook quite a bit. <laughs>
1: yes, totally agree. In, in the season of giving... If you or your company makes a lot of money based off of somebody's open source package, find a way to give back to those people because they're most likely doing it uh, in their free time, nights and weekends, most likely not uh, you know, doing it maybe at their own personal expense. So if there are ways to give back to those people, some of my favorite uh, developers of our packages do in their GitHub repositories have links where you can buy them a coffee or you can you know make a small donation to them so that they can upkeep a lot of these r packages that they have that we find super useful um you know ask yourself or your company to find a way to, to give back to those people because more likely than not um they're bringing a lot of value to
0: to your work or to your company yep couldn't have said it better myself um definitely i have a, a few that are on my my list to get back to this year for sure and Speaking of giving back, speaking of uh, great resources, obviously this issue has way more than what we talked about today. Um, I wanna highlight an additional um, pretty big milestone, especially in the industry I'm supporting at the moment. As part of the R Consortium, there was a working group of myself and a few others in, in my industry for looking at ways to use R exclusively for a clinical submission. What I mean by clinical submission is when you have, say, a trial that's been conducted, you've gotten your results analyzed, you've you've got your databases locked, so to speak. I'm throwing a lot of life sciences terms here, but there comes a time when you need to get that treatment approved. And so you have to submit all your data package, everything that goes with it to the regulators, which in the case of here in the North America is the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. There are lots of challenges in that space alone, but what this working group has done is that they worked on a test submission, not real data this time, but just mimicking it, where the analyses, the data cleaning, the processing, the tabulation into clinical result outputs was done exclusively in R. There was no handoffs to proprietary uh, software here. This is all done in R and it was successfully submitted through the FDA's uh, portal. and it was able to be reproduced on their end with no errors at all. So that is, I cannot <laughs> I cannot say it enough as somebody's been in this industry for over 13 years, as a passionate advocate of open source, this is a huge, huge step in the direction of open source becoming more of a valued contributor to this highly regulated field. So awesome stuff there. Congrats to the rest of the team. I, I frankly did not do very a whole lot of work with this. Um, many of my contributors on that team um, did way more than me, um, but the blog post linked in the issue will have great details on where you can find out more. So, And also, if you like learning through videos and not just online books, um, but has got a great video section this week. Lots of great things to learn about the new um, advancements in the Tiny Models ecosystem. And if you want to geek out more about Shiny, we link to my latest episode with Colin Fay of the Shiny Developer Series. What about you, Mike?
1: Yes, everybody, if you're a Shiny developer interested in Shiny, please go out and watch Eric's latest Shiny Dev Series episode with Colin Fay. Uh, Colin is one of my favorite people to listen to within the Shiny ecosystem. If you do use Shiny, uh, on a fairly regular basis, you have probably come into contact with some of Colin's work, uh, if not the, the Gollum package, which has totally changed the way that I work with Shiny. And I know Eric can say the same thing. So it was great to listen to some of the updates from Colin around a lot of the work that him and his team um, in France are, are doing uh, within the Shiny ecosystem. So please check out that tutorial and congratulations to you, Eric, and the team uh, on the R Consortium on that first R-based submission to the FDA's uh, ECTD. That's gateway, right, Yeah, right? We, um, Catchbrook had its, its first foray this year into the, the pharma space and some FDA submissions, um, which were successful and did involve some R. So very excited for us as well to hear that R is coming more to the forefront of uh, the FDA. And I also saw that the video from Tom Neatman and Tekla Akinyi, from, uh, they're from Roach and GSK, uh, they gave a presentation on the Admiral R package for working with uh, Atom Data, which was presented um, at this year's R Farmer Conference, is now up on YouTube. Uh, so we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Um, but that's a phenomenal resource that was years uh, in the making of developing. Um, And I think it can can really revolutionize folks' workflow in that space. So um, great to hear about those updates. And also kind of maybe on a totally different note, I saw in the R Weekly highlights that there were some changes for Windows users with the coming R 4.2 version. I noticed uh, some of the folks who had authored this blog post are some of the folks who have uh, kicked back on our packages that I've submitted to CRAN in the past. So they're certainly uh, folks who, who know the internals of the language and know exactly what they're doing. And I apologize to them again for some of the broken URLs I submitted uh, in R packages to CRAN in the past. But they made it. And uh, the update is that R 4.2 for Windows will support UTF-8 as native encoding, which will be a major improvement in encoding support allowing Windows R users to work with international text and data. So look for more on that, but looks like a very helpful change for those of us who unfortunately have to work on Windows as I am one of them uh, on a day-to-day basis.
0: I've certainly heard many stories about things like broken URLs or URLs that didn't follow the exact format. So kudos to you for persevering through that for that uh, submission work and I'll be honest, I have not touched R on Windows for a very long time, although I just did because I am preparing tutorials for getting VS Code and R up and running. I'm trying to hit every major OS, the big three, as they say. And so I fired up a Windows VM and got reacquainted for those uh, idiosyncrasies on that platform. So I won't judge. It's a world that we all have to live in one way or another. Um, So I've... I've got a new appreciation for people have to work on that every day. But, but yeah, that's, uh, it may seem like a little thing, but I know encoding on Windows has been a pain point for many, many, many years. So that's great to see. R4.2 is going to get a nice advancement there as well. All right. Well, there's obviously way more than that, um, but I would invite all of you, as always, to check out the full issue, linked at rweekly.org right there on the home page, get links to everything we mentioned and then some want to get the episodes of the podcast. It's just right at the podcast link at the top of the page. You can't miss it. At least I hope you can. And we're also available on every podcatcher that you can probably think of. If it's not under your favorite service, definitely drop me a note. I'm doing my best to route it to all the places, as I say. Um, and certainly if you want to give us feedback, we're always welcome to hear from you. Um, our great audience here. You can find me usually on Twitter, at the Rcast, as well as my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash Rpodcast, and the YouTube channel for the Shining Developer Series. Mike, where can people get a hold of you? Sure. You can
1: find me on Twitter as well, Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Very
0: nice. Give Mike a shout. He always loves talking to everybody, just like I do. So... That's going to wrap up episode 69. We're about to hit another milestone next time when we record. Um, but as always, thank you all for listening. Until next time, we will be back with another batch of our Weekly Highlights next week.